Dear Lord, baby Jesus, thank you for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. That, that was not actual prayer. If you're praying with me, it's okay. You can open your eyes. Amen. Yeah. That was the opening line of Ricky Bobby's prayer in the movie Talladega Nights. Now, for those of you who are good Christians, you don't know what I'm talking about. So let me explain a little bit. So uh, Ricky Bobby was a race car driver, and he gathered his family around the dinner table one night and his teammate, uh, Count On Jr., and he began to bless this meal. And so he continued, Dear Lord, baby Jesus, eight pounds, six ounces, golden fleece diapers. When his wife, Carly, cut in, um, Ricky, excuse me, you know Jesus did grow up. He wasn't always a baby. It's a bit weird and off-putting to pray to a baby. To which Ricky replied, Well, I'm the one saying grace, and I like the Christmas version of Jesus best. So whenever you're saying grace, you can pray to teenage Jesus, adult Jesus, bearded Jesus, whoever you want to. And Cal, his, his teammate at this point, piped up and said, I like to picture my Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. Because it's like, I'm formal, but I'm here to party too. And I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. Now, this is ridiculous. If this is your first time here, sorry, it's not always like that, but... An observation, an astute observation from such a ridiculous scene. Ricky and Cal wanted to pick and choose their version of Jesus. Ricky thought, I like the Christmas version, the best, cute and cuddly. And Cal did something even more interesting. Cal took Jesus and created him in his own image. So Cal liked to party, and so he liked his Jesus to party. Now, at first, when we see a scene like that, we think, well, nobody actually thinks like that. Nobody prays like that. This is so ridiculous. But what I've noticed is that it's not just Ricky and Cal that think that way. There's actually many people, self-professing Christians that I've met and I know, that they seem to kind of think the same way. Here's what they do. People pick and choose their Jesus. And so when people think about Jesus, they might think, well, I like the table-flipping version of Jesus best. You ever talk with somebody like that? I got some of them in my family. And anytime they want to get angry or have righteous indignation, well, Jesus flipped tables. Uh, for some people, maybe they like the meek and lowly Jesus who, who wouldn't bruise a reed, right? He, he, he wouldn't snuff out a candle, right? He's just so meek and mild. And so we just, we're just soft. And we'll never say the hard things. We'll never have the tough conversations. We're just soft. Some of us, like Cal, we've been made in the image of God, and yet we make God in our own image. And so it's interesting because all of a sudden, who knew after nearly 2,000 years of church history, Jesus actually approves of homosexuality. Jesus says that you can just come up with as many genders as you want. Jesus was a, a, a Tea Party uh, Republican. You know, whatever it is, for whatever person on the spectrum, it isn't it interesting that their Jesus believes everything they do and makes decisions just like they would and hangs out with the exact people and goes to the same places. Isn't that interesting that Jesus has never challenged their thinking or their, their actions? And so why does this matter? Who cares? Why don't we just all, let's just all come up with our own version of Jesus. Who cares anyways? Well, that's really problematic because Jesus, the Jesus we believe, the Jesus that we trust, 
we actually imitate him. So the things he did, we do those things. And then we actually become more like him. So if you're Jesus, um, for example, thinks that truth is relative and just let everybody decide and don't, don't push any buttons, well, you're going to believe it doesn't matter what my family members believe. It doesn't matter what I believe. It doesn't matter what other people believe. I just want to be tolerant and I just want to let them do them, right? Or if it's, you know, for you, you might think, well, uh, yeah, I mean, I know that Jesus took care of orphans and widows and the poor, but, you know, he didn't understand economics like me. You know, he didn't understand, like, how we should use money in our country right now. So I'm not going to give to the poor or the, the needy or anything. Whatever it is, our version of Jesus shapes who we become, the things we believe, and the actions that we take. So it's really important that we get a biblical picture of Jesus. And so this question of who is Jesus is so important, in fact, that we've devoted an entire series to this. And we've asked the question, who is this baby? Who is this baby? As we see the nativity, as we walk through the nativity, who is this baby that's born in? What, what's the big deal here? So the reality is that there's not just one name or one title that can encapsulate all of the character of Jesus, right? And so the first week uh, we saw... Uh, Josh taught on how Jesus is God, and then this past week, our lead pastor Brett uh, taught on how Jesus is Savior. And so today, we're going to continue discovering from God's Word who this baby is. If you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. The Gospel according to Luke was written by a guy named Luke. He was a disciple of Jesus, a Gentile, and a doctor. And he wrote to a guy named Theophilus, and the reason he wrote was to assure Theophilus that what he had learned about Jesus was true. So Luke talked to a bunch of different eyewitnesses and put together this account of the life of Jesus. And that's what we're reading today. It's like a biography of Jesus, if you're not familiar with the Bible. So just to catch us up, the first 25 verses of chapter 1, here's what happened. It starts off, God sent an angel, Gabriel, uh, to earth, and he interacted with a guy named Zechariah. So Zechariah is, is ministering to the Lord in the temple one day. And angel comes to him. He's obviously afraid, like most anybody would be, freaked out, wondering what's going on. And the angel says, Zechariah, look, I know that you're old. I know that your wife Elizabeth is old, and y'all haven't been able to have kids. But God is going to give y'all a child, and his name's going to be John. Good, I almost got y'all. Not Jesus. John, yes. This is the Bible scholars in here. I knew third service was the best. Um, so he says, you're going to have a child, John. Zechariah didn't believe this word from the Lord. Couldn't believe it. Just thought, there's, there's no way. How, how are we going to have a kid? We're old. There's no way. And so as, as a rebuke, as punishment, uh, he becomes mute. He can't speak. And so he leaves. And a few weeks later, miraculously, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. And so that's where we're at. We pick up the story. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. This is the word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So it had been six months since Elizabeth had become pregnant, and now God sends Gabriel to Nazareth, this podunk, backwoods town. And of all people he goes to, he goes to this virgin girl, this young, illiterate, poor girl and he has a conversation for her, Mary, of all people. Interesting. So Gabriel appears to Mary and starts a conversation. 
Verse 28. Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by the statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. So Gabriel appears in Nazareth. He's talking to Mary. Mary is the cousin of Elizabeth, who just got pregnant. She's betrothed to Joseph, who's a descendant of the great king, King David. And Gabriel greets her and says, Greetings, favored woman. It's this warm greeting. But Elizabeth's freaked out. She's like, Whoa, what, what, what is happening? Like most people do when angels appear, they, they're afraid. And she's not sure, why is this angel here? And why is he talking to me? And so Gabriel calmed her fears and shared a message with Mary that would change her life forever. Verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Imagine that moment when Mary, this young girl, heard those words from an angel. A virgin. She never had sexual relations with any man. And suddenly this angel says, you're going to get pregnant and you're going to have a baby boy. Like, what? This doesn't even compute, right? But you're going to have a son, that's what he says. And you will name him Jesus. Iesus means Jehovah saves. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a son miraculously. And he's not just going to be a child. It's not just going to be Joseph's son. This is actually going to be the son of the Most High God. This will be the Son of God. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So Gabriel said, you're going to have a son. He'll be the son of God. And he's going to have the throne of his father, David. His kingdom will never end. What's he talking about? Hundreds of years before this moment we're reading about, Israel, the people of God, had one king. And that king was God. There was no human king. And so one day the Israelites had looked over all these surrounding nations and they thought, wait a minute, man, all these other people, they have human kings. God, we want a human king too. We want to be like everybody else. And so they actually reject the sole kingship of God for human kings. And so God, he turns, turns them over to their desire. And so he says, okay, you want a king? I'll give one to you. So he gave him King Saul. King Saul ended up being a dud. didn't work out for him. But King David rose up. And although he had sin in his life, he was a man after God's own heart. His life was characterized by a pursuit of God. And so God, one day, made a promise to King David. 2 Samuel chapter 7 Verses 11 through 16. I will make a house for you. Now, God's not promising David a physical house. He's promising a dynasty of kings and rulers. I'll make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body. So when you die, David, I'm going to give you a descendant. And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be his father. He will be my son. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. So Gabriel told Mary that she was going to have a baby boy who would be the son of the Most High God. He'd be the son of God, and he'd also be the son of David. The descendant of the, this, this king, King David, 
who for so long, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the people of God have been waiting. When will God give us the Messiah? When will the anointed one come to redeem and rescue us and free us from our, our captors? That's the promise. That's what Gabriel said, Mary, God wants you to know this. And so with the Christmas season upon us, with the nativity scenes around us, as we look at this baby, who is this baby? We see from this passage from the Word of God that this baby is king. This baby is king. From the moment that he was born, he was born the son of David and the son of God, the king of Israel and the king of creation. He's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, the prince of peace, the governments on his shoulders. His dominion is vast. His prosperity will never end. His kingdom will reign forever. In other words, when we see Jesus, he's not just cute, cuddly little baby. He is the supreme sovereign of the universe. He's in control. He calls the shots. He's in charge. He's in the driver's seat. That's who Jesus is. Now, what's interesting, I don't know about you guys, but for me, I grew up in the South. I grew up in a church culture. And so you go to church, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, right? Like you're always at church. And so I always had this idea of who Jesus was. Recently, a couple of years ago, I was preaching at a church I worked at in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Roll Tide, if you're mad that they're in the playoffs, sorry about you. Anyways, um, so I'm in Tuscaloosa, and uh, for the five college football fans in the room, um, and I asked the church, I, I, I tricked them. So I said, I said, church, fill in the blank. I said, Jesus is my personal, and I had an idea of what they were going to say. Maybe you do too. And they all, all of them, every single person said, Jesus is my personal Savior. They were right. Jesus is Savior. We discovered that last week, Right? But here's what's interesting. They didn't say Lord. They didn't say He's my Lord and Savior or my King and Savior. Now, I've kind of tipped my hand, but track with me here. So, if you had to take a wild guess, how many times do you think the word Savior was used in the Bible in reference to Jesus? Just shout it out. Take a wild guess. How many times? 69. 57, 22, 1, 26 times. Jesus is called Savior 26 times. Now, how many times do you think he's called Lord? 100, 400, 1,000, 156, 217. All right, here's the answer. 622 times. So here's why this matters. You might, you might not really connect the dots. What am I saying? I'll say it this way. I remember the first time when I was in college, I started to read about the life of Jesus. And someone made that point. I'm sure many of you have heard it before. They said, Preston, you know how many times the word Christians in the New Testament? Three times. It's three times. But my whole life, all I'd ever called myself was a Christian. And the reality is that I probably didn't have a biblical definition I had a cultural definition of what that word meant. And so that shaped who I saw myself as and how I lived. I was a Christian. 
And then they got me. They said, Preston, do you know how many times the word disciple is used in the New Testament? I forget the exact number. It's over 300 times. And I said, hold on, wait a minute. Why do we only say I'm a Christian when there's multiple words that are used? And why do we ex exclusively use the word that's used three times, but we don't use the word that's used a hundred times more? So I started to think of myself differently. I started to think of myself as a disciple of Jesus, someone who is a student or a learner or an apprentice of the person Jesus. So everything he does, I do. Everything he taught, I obey. So it shifted for me who I was and what I did. Now, in the same way, what I'm saying is, if you answer the question, who is Jesus? And you do what I did most of my life, and you exclusively say, oh yeah, Jesus is my Savior. He saved me from my sins. He saved me, he's delivered me from the devil, from death, from slavery of the flesh. All those things which are true. If you, but if you only think of him that way, you're missing out on Jesus as your king. The Lord Jesus. The one who's in charge of every area of your life. The one who you've submitted and pledged your allegiance to, to follow him. So it begins to shape who he is, shapes how we view ourselves and how we live. What we discover here is from the very beginning, before he was even born, Jesus is king. So how did, how did Mary respond to this? Verse 34. Mary asked the angel, How can this be, since I've not had sexual relations with a man? So Gabriel says, You're going to have a son, son of God, son of David, he'll be king. And Mary, she believes she has faith, unlike Zechariah, who didn't believe. But she's got some questions. She's like, okay, help me understand, Gabriel, because usually it takes two to tango. This is before modern medicine. They're, this just doesn't make any sense. Uh, and so Gabriel gave Mary an answer, verse 35. Here's how. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless, for nothing will be impossible with God. So Mary asked Gabriel, okay, how am I going to have this child? And his answer, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to empower you to miraculously give birth to the Son of God. And if that's not enough for you, Mary, just look at Elizabeth, look at your cousin, She's been childless. She's old in age. And this is the sixth month since she became pregnant. Nothing will be impossible with God. Now watch how Mary responded. Verse 38. See, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it happen to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. When Gabriel told Mary, you're going to have a son miraculously. He'll be the son of God and son of David, king forever. She had faith. And she said, I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as you have said. Mary surrendered to God. Now, Here's what's fascinating to me. Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. Adonai, ruler. Different names of God, right? One of them is Adonai that's used here. She said, I am the Lord's servant. So in other words, she is saying and declaring God is my sovereign. 
He's in charge. He rules. He calls the shots over everything, including my life. And because she knew who he was, it shaped the view of herself. He's my sovereign. I am the Lord's servant. I am servant. Now, here's what's fascinating. This word servant in Greek actually comes from the word doulos, which meant slave or bondservant. Now, on one hand, that word, because of our American heritage and background and the terrible things associated with slavery, that, that probably is not helpful to some of us to hear, I am the Lord's slave. But what is helpful about that word is that it has a connotation maybe servant doesn't for us, which is that God is my master. He owns me. He is in control of me. My life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. There is a level of submission that comes from knowing God is sovereign and I am his slave. If you feel more comfortable using servant or bond servant, great. Use that word too. But use a word that you're saying, God's in total control of my life. That's what Mary did. I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as you have said. Mary knew that God was her sovereign. She was his slave. And so when he said the word, what did she do? Surrendered. Surrender. Mary surrendered to God. Bill Bright was a guy of total surrender. Here's a picture of Bill and uh, Vonette Bright uh, from the 50s. Bill Bright was born in Oklahoma in 1921. He was the founder and president of Crew or Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, and I just want to give you an p- insight into the kind of person we're talking about so you'll hear his heart, hear the importance of what he's going to say. So Bill Bright, um, first of all, <laughs> he has made an impact in the world maybe that no one in recent history has come close to. So today, for example, Crew has over 19,000 workers in 190 countries. His gospel tract that he wrote, Have You Heard the Four Spiritual Laws, has been distributed 2.5 billion times. And a film that he helped make about the life of Jesus called The Jesus Film has been viewed 5 billion times. It's being used a lot in, in unreached people groups in 1040 window. So Bill Bright was a disciple maker. I mean, this guy made an impact in the world for Jesus Christ. But that's not all. In 2002, he died. Just before his death, he did an interview. And in that interview, (laughs) he was so full of joy. He was so certain of the love and care of God as he faced death that the guy interviewing him was like kind of shocked by it. And as a Christian guy, he's just like, help me understand. Why, how, how do you have so much joy? And I just want to read to you a little bit of that interview. During COVID, Bill Bright, through his writings, became a mentor to me, in a sense. I began to read about his, his faith and how he trusted God. And he stepped out and took risks for God. Here's what he said in that interview. Jesus is not only my Lord, my Master, my Savior, my King... So all the things we've just been saying that Mary said. But Vonette and I signed a contract with him in 1951, 50 years ago, in which we became slaves of Jesus. That was our commitment. Whatever he wanted us to do, everything I owned, ever would own, I put on the altar. Listen to this. I've been a slave for 50 years, and this is very liberating to be a slave. You catch that? The guy asked him, you've talked often 
in your writings about this contract. Uh, what was in that contract, though? What was so important? Total, irrevocable surrender to be a slave of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself was a slave and surrendered. Philippians 2 speaks of Jesus, God the Son, that God-man becoming a slave. That's the word in Greek again. Uh, Paul speaks of himself, Romans 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, as a slave of Jesus Christ. This letter is from Paul, Jesus Christ's chosen missionary set out to preach God's good news. Peter refers to himself as a slave and so on. So I couldn't think of a better, higher calling than to be a slave to Jesus. And Vonette agreed. About 24 hours after we signed that contract in which we relinquished everything we own, ever would own, our past, present, future, God gave me the vision. So right after he surrendered, wrote the contract, God gave me the vision we call Campus Crusade for Christ, a vision to help take the gospel to the whole world. It was on the other side of surrender that all the breakthrough happened. Go back to the words the interviewer said, the surrender to be a slave. That's not being used in the pulpits in America very much. In Mark 8, Bill said, uh, Jesus said, If any man come, comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. If any man confess me before man, I will confess before my Father in heaven. But if they deny me before men, him I will deny before my Father in heaven. And again and again and again, the Scripture calls us to absolute, total, irrevocable surrender. Last question the guy asked him. So when you're gone from this life and there's a need for a place to bury you, there's a marker, a tombstone, what do you want on that tombstone? Bill said, Vonette and I have talked about this. My preference is to be buried in an unmarked grave. <laughs> I love that. Galatians 2.20 says, I'm crucified with Christ. But Vonette didn't think that was a good idea. And uh, we've decided and both agree that we'll do a tombstone with our names, Bill and Vonette Bright. Slaves of Jesus. Doing that is the highest privilege anyone can anticipate. See, Mary knew that God was her sovereign. She was a slave and she surrendered. Bill Bright did the same thing. He said, God, everything, it's on the table. It's yours. And so during COVID, as I began to read and be inspired by Bill Bright, I said, you know what? I'll never be a Bill Bright. There's only one of those but I want to learn from the people who went before me. And so Meg and I, we wrote the covenant. I didn't like contract because I'm not a business guy, but we wrote the covenant. I'm not going to read this whole thing, but just a couple of lines to give you a sense of what Meg and I uh, spoke to God about. Jesus, you are Lord. We pledge our total allegiance to you. We surrender to you in your direction. Take total and absolute control. We have been bought with a price. Our lives are not our own. We are your slaves. We trust you with our life and with eternity. We love you more than life itself. And we finish with this. God, we commit our lives to you, holy to the Lord. Now we ask that you give us a vision for our life. And we signed it. A few weeks later, I get a text message from a guy in Nashville named Bobby who said, hey, you should talk to this guy, Pat. They're looking for a campus pastor at this church, New Life, in Virginia. I said, would you be interested? And I said, no. I would not be interested. I do not want to go to Northern Virginia. I want to stay in the South. And then I began to realize, wait a minute. <laughs> Is everything in my life really surrendered to God? 
if God said, Preston, go to Southeast Asia, go to the 1040 window and reach an unreached people group. See, I grew up my whole life thinking, oh, what if God makes me be a missionary? I don't want to do that, right? We're all, we've all had that terrifying moment. No! And God began to speak to me. Preston, you have not surrendered every area of your life to me. And so Meg and I prayed about it, fasted on it, talked with other people, and, and all these different things lined up. And we said, okay, we're going to go to Virginia. We're going to be part of this New Life Christian Church. And the reason I tell this is because I think that sometimes we read the Bible and it's so pie in the sky, and we just, oh, yeah, I know this Bible thing. And I'm telling you, this is real life. This is what I'm living and experiencing. And you can live and experience this too. And many of you already have. Many of you have already made this decision and continue to make this decision. I'm going to surrender everything to you, Jesus. I'm a slave. You're a king. Total submission to you. And from my own experience, my joy in God is at a level it's never been at before. My relationship with God, the way I know him experientially through the ups and downs of life, I'm at a, a deeper level of love and intimacy with God than ever before. I don't think it would have happened at the same level, the same quality of relationship if I hadn't surrendered and said, we're going to move. And on top of that, again, I'm not Bill Bright, never will be, but when I was in Tuscaloosa, you know, I tried this whole making disciples thing. You guys might have heard of this. And, uh, and I tried it with some frat bros. And there was a guy that I met, and I said, hey, what if you start a Bible study with your frat? 30 guys came the first week. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's happening. And then by the third week, it all fell apart. That guy left campus. It was all, it was terrible. And I was so crushed. I was so disappointed. And I thought to myself, I'll never make an impact for God. I read about these people that they write the books about, and they're just a different category. God can't use me. I really thought that. I almost got out of ministry. And I stuck with ministry, and I didn't give up on it. But that's what God was calling me to do. And today, I sit before you with this Gainesville football sweatshirt on, and I've seen God make an impact in people's lives. I've seen in five months' time roughly 70 students in four groups who have, 16 of them have been baptized, come to faith in Jesus roughly about nine leaders. It's gone from the football to wrestling, basketball. It's going to baseball in February. I mean, it's talking to a guy after service earlier today at Chantilly. I mean, when I surrendered to God, God was able to use me at a different level. And so here's what we've all got to decide this morning. Here's what God's inviting us into. Whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian, surrender to King Jesus. Will you surrender? Will you just lay everything at the altar and say, God, have your way. Take total control. Wherever you want me to move, whatever job you want me to have. If you want me to go into vocational ministry, if you want to stay in, in, in the workplace, make disciples there. Whatever you want, God. If you want me to give beyond 10%. If you want me to give with radical generosity, I'll do that. If you want me to go and share my faith and baptize people and teach other people how to obey your commandments, I'll do it. I might not want to do it. I might be hesitant. I might be afraid to do it. But my yes is on the table. My life is a blank check. I don't know what all you're going to ask me, but I've already signed it. Take total control of my life. So now I want to shift from talking about this stuff to giving you the space to respond and make a commitment. 
to the Lord. So I know we are programmed to do the least. So we're going to have to break through this barrier of reaching to our phone like six inches or reaching to a journal or a piece of paper. Please, right now, everybody here and online, would you pull out something to write with? And as you do that, the reason I want you to do that is because what I've found to be true for me and others is that when we write a commitment down, it clarifies our thinking and it gives us something to reflect on throughout the week. This is going to help you hold yourself accountable. So you don't have to write it down, but I believe this is going to help you. That's why I'm asking you to do it. So I would like for you to uh, write two words. I will. What is your commitment as you've read the Word of God, as you've heard from the Spirit of God, if you're really going to surrender to King Jesus, what needs to change in your life? Maybe for some of you, you need to have a conversation with your spouse and you need to ask for forgiveness because of the way you've treated them. Maybe you need to go to marriage counseling. For some of you, you've got hurts and habits and hang-ups in your life that you keep toying with and ah, it's not really hurting anybody, it's not that bad. And you need to go to celebrate recovery and you need to have victory over those. For some of you, you need to stop just going to church on Sunday and being a consumer of cultural Christianity and you need to commit, I'm going to be in a group. I'm going to live life with people. I'm going to have relationships, not just show up to a service. For some of you, you need to get out there and share the gospel. Share your story. Lead people to faith in Jesus. Now, whatever that is for you this week and the next seven days, just pick one thing. Start small. How are you going to surrender to God? I'm going to give you 60 seconds to think, pray, and write that down. Ready? Go. Thank you guys for doing that. All right, next step. We're getting even crazier this morning. I know. So here's what I want you to do next. Again, this is, I believe this is going to help you. I've done this, helped others do it. It's helped them. All right. If you're new, if this is your first time, you don't have to do this. You can just watch other people do it. It's okay. But if you're a part of this church, I want to invite you and encourage you. Turn to somebody next to you. doesn't matter who it is, spouse, family, friend, some stranger, a couple of chairs down. Turn to somebody and each of you take a turn and share what is your commitment. What are you going to do in the next seven days? Again, this will help you follow through and hold you accountable. Take 30 seconds each. Ready? Go.
All right, as we end, I want to speak to you specifically if you're not yet a Christian. If you're here today, family, friend, invited you, you just looked online, came, whatever. If you're not a Christian today, a couple of things. I know that it might sound intense and scary to surrender your life to someone else. And what I would say is... First of all, if, if you're hesitant to become a slave of Jesus, I just want you to recognize that you probably assume that you're free right now. When in fact you're not. See, every human on the planet is a slave to someone or something. So you're either a slave to your flesh and the desires that you have because of your sinful nature. You're a slave to the other king the devil, the spiritual forces of evil, and the kingdom of darkness, or you're a slave to Jesus. That's really it. That's your options. And you might even put yourself on the throne, and you might want to be king of your own life. And what you'll find is that you don't make a very good king, that Jesus actually is a much better king. And, and, and here's another thing I would say is the, <laughs> another reason, if you're not a Christian today, that you can trust Jesus to be your king is you, you might be hesitant to let him have control for two reasons. You think you're wiser than him, and you think that you have your best interests at heart more than he does. See, because if you really knew that someone was way, way, way wiser than you, and knew like infinitely more than you, wouldn't you want that person to take responsibility and ownership and lead you and guide you? Because that's what he's doing as king. That's what it means. It means he's responsible for you. Wouldn't you want someone much wiser than you to do that? And also, you probably think, oh no, well, if I give him control, what if he, what if he makes me do something that I, that's not good for me? And the reality is, like, he loves you way more than you love yourself. He loves you. He longs to know you and have a relationship with you. And you can trust him. You can trust his heart and his character. And you can trust him because this king, King Jesus, he's not a tyrant. He's not an abusive leader. King Jesus died for you. You can see the love he has for you. You can see that he's willing to lay down his own life for you so that you could have a relationship with God. And whatever the barriers are for you this morning, if you're not a Christian, I'm pleading with you, come to Christ today. Turn away from your sinful life, however you're living. Get off the throne and let Jesus take the throne. Trust him. Just ask him, Jesus, would you save me? Would you forgive me of all my sins? Would you give me a new heart? That's what he promises. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. It's going to change you from the inside out. I'm going to give you eternal life. You can have abundant life now and forever, even after you die. That's available for you today. But you've got to respond. You've got to trust and follow Jesus as king of your life. If that's you, Go to the prayer banner. If you want to become a follower of Jesus today, go to the prayer banner. I'll be back there. If you want prayer for anything, if you need help, if you're hurting, whatever you need, let us pray with you. We'll have a team of people back there. We'd love to help you take that next step. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for King Jesus, the kind of king that willingly laid down his life at the cross for us. So full of love, so full of compassion and mercy. God, we trust that you know better than us. We trust your heart for us. And so, God, we willingly surrender. We give you absolute control of our lives. 
I'm on Audible really quick. Would you guys stand with me? Would you stand with me right now? And would you guys begin to kind of just spread out around the room? You got plenty of room, just kind of spread out, get some space. And you don't have to do this. You, you, in fact, you can, it can look a bunch of different ways. But I just want to invite you right now. I didn't do this in the other two services. Just kind of just, Holy Spirit put this on my heart, so I want to respond to it. Would you either kneel in prayer? Would you do something that communicates, Lord, I surrender? Would you go ahead and do that right now? Whatever you want that to look like, you don't have to kneel, but just take a posture of, Lord, I'm laying it all on the altar. I'm surrendering every part of my life to you. My money, my time, my relationships, my future, you can have it all, Lord. God, we are on our knees. We are humbled before you. Lord, forgive us for not recognizing your lordship. Forgive us for the times that we've tried to be king of our own life. Lord, would you forgive us and cleanse us, Lord. God, give us a clean heart. Purify us, God. Holy Spirit, fill us and lead us and empower us, God, to never be the same. Lord, would you give us victory over the strongholds? God, would you give us hope when we're crushed and we're down? God, help us to love you and love people and make disciples to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray.